What if I told you that when folks in anti-racism spaces decry objectivity as not a real thing, they're alluding to a fact proven by quantum physics? What if I told you when the so-called woke protest against the limitations of the written word, they are echoing something that Socrates himself observed hundreds of years ago? In this new episode of the Heart Speaks podcast, I discuss all of this and more with esteemed journalist Celeste Headley, whose work, if internalized, could revolutionize journalism for the better, make us all the more empathetic, and rehumanize us in the long run. All righty. Well, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Where are I'm you? I'm good. I am in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Where are you? In D.C. Oh, cool. How is D.C. these days? Uh, the weather is finally not disgusting okay uh, so it's good yeah and, is it uh, getting cooler there it is finally in fact today this morning it was in the 50s hmm. and that was lovely yeah it was also so ready pretty chilly this morning here in brooklyn i don't know if it will stay that way cool well how do i pronounce your last name headley just like it's spelled okay headley celeste headley awesome I want this to be as informal a conversation as possible, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Uh, I watched some of your TED Talks and I've explored some of your writing. So I'm super excited to talk to you. I'm also a little nervous because you're like an expert at interviewing people and now I have to interview you. And so <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, I hope to apply some of the principles that you talk about. But I guess my first question would be, what got you interested in journalism in the first place? I wasn't actually interested in journalism. My degrees are both in opera. And when I graduated from my graduate, from graduate school, I needed a day job. Every musician needs a day job. And Mm -hmm. um, I took a job as a weekend classical music host on our local public radio station in Arizona. And over time, it ended up that they needed a cultural reporter hmm. um, and their, their reporters there were not, you know, they were asking Marilyn Horn things like, are you nervous? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, right. So they did not know how to report on um, cultural issues. And so I said, well, heck, I'm never going to turn down free training. Hmm. Um, so they trained me to do reporting and I just ended up really loving it. And it ended up being something I was really good at. So yeah, ever beautiful. Since then, that was like 1999, and uh, never been out of journalism since. And would you say there are things that you learned in opera that you were able to apply to journalism and to interviewing people? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think especially because I'm in broadcast journalism specifically, I think a musicians is one of the few professions where they actually train you to listen. Mm-hmm. I also think that um, a, a musician's ear that that listens for the landscape of an aural sound helps in broadcast journalism because you're never going to get a monotone, either a monotone mm. delivery from me or even a story as I'm producing it. I'm going to give you fortes and pianos yeah. and all of that landscaping to keep it interesting. And I think also that one thing about being a professional musician is that you are a forever student. Like you have to Mm. take lessons and usually multiple lessons for the rest of your life. Like you will take voice lessons as as a vocalist for the rest of your performing life. You will probably also have a coach. Mm. Um, And what that means is that you never think of yourself as being, I'm an expert now I'm done learning. And that is the exact same kind of mindset that you need to bring to journalism. You can't Mm. ever go into reporting with this idea that I know what the story is about. So yeah, there's quite a few things that I think helped me out that transferred from one to the other. So would you recommend to those who are interested in a journalism career to perhaps take up, if not a music practice, some kind of artistic practice that might be conducive to training that ear or sensibility for listening, as you put it? I mean, I think everybody period, journalist or not, needs to, to take listening courses. You know, we have all these public speaking courses, but for homo sapiens, speaking is actually quite easy for us. It's the listening part that's actually quite difficult um, and has to be trained, as it turned out. You don't just pick it up through osmosis in some other course or 
because you're listening to your friend. In order to get become a better listener, you have to actually work at it. Mm. Um, so that's number one. But journalists especially really get into trouble because of their expectations and assumptions. Mm. Um, and so journalists especially should also, any course in journalism needs to include how to really listen to someone. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I have heard an interview. In fact, I can think of one right now when uh, a local host was interviewing a, an, a musician who was performing at some upcoming festival. And they were asking, you know, very standard questions, you know, where do you, you know, why did you become a musician? And the, the musician starts talking about their early life. And then they said, when then, because there was so much abuse in my family, then this other thing happened. And the, the interviewer says, so when is your next tour date? And I was like, oh, <laughs> <what?"> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, journalists will go into these interviews with a list of questions they're going to ask and that stops them from listening. And it's the same thing in, you know, even when I'm interviewing even NPR correspondents, mm. they want to know the questions in advance so that they have answers ready, which means they never have to really listen to my question. So yeah, it's crucial. Mm. And do you think that there are uh, aspects of our culture that disincentivizes us from doing that work of learning how to listen, especially within the field of journalism. You said that journalists bring a lot of expectations and assumptions. Like, what do you think within our culture sort of encourage us, if any, encourage us, encourages us to bring in those assumptions? And because I am also a novice musician, <laughs> I play guitar. I you know, like to DJ from time to time. I also produce music. And so I do feel that that practice gives me a, a sensibility or a sensitivity for what you're saying. And simultaneously, I sometimes feel I'm given cues from other aspects of society that says to shut that off and to just come into a place with assumptions, know what you're going in for and get those things and then be gone. So I'm curious if in your experience, Within journalism, there are sort of competing forces that disincentivize this journalist to bring in that ear. Yes. I mean, that's everywhere in our culture. Um, mm. We know, we happen to know that screens, it, mm. what they call digitally mediated conversations, mm. um, are not true conversations, not authentic conversations um, as interpreted by our brains and our bodies. Mm. Um, and so, we know what parts of the brain are activated and in use when, a, when someone is making an actual connection in a conversation. And that doesn't happen when you're emailing or posting mm. on social media or slacking. So we know that. We also know that the sight of a screen, even whether it be your phone or your computer, even in your peripheral vision is extremely distracting to your brain as well. Mm. Um, and so we often have these conversations while we have not only screens in front of us and our cell phone within our peripheral vision, mine is in my peripheral vision right now. So I'm not, Me too. Advice. <laughs> um, but we'll have a billion tabs open. Yeah. Um, and they did research in the UK in which they discovered that even if you have just your email inbox open at all times, it lowers your IQ by like 12 points. So yes, this is a, this is a societal prob problem right now. You know, having oh. a real conversation requires um, higher thinking. It requires executive functioning and mm. really complicated cognitive processing. It's asking of our brains that we try to intuit what someone is really saying, what they mm. mean, the context of what they're saying. And that is very high level thinking. And so all these things around us that are distracting our brains and pulling our energy and our focus away are preventing us from having authentic connections with others. Now, there's also, of course, the problem of polarization. And there's the, since the 1600s, 1700s, the problem of racism. Mm -hmm. um, that's not, that's always going to influence people. And it's especially bad in journalism because we're talking about an, an industry that is vastly majority white. And so, but they're also very, often tend to be very smart and smart people are more vulnerable to prejudice and bias than mm. others because they think that their education and their smarts protect them mm. and they do not. So there's all these things feeding in that makes journalists even more prone. But let me say one more thing that makes uh, journalists even more prone to making assumptions 
even subconsciously, or coming in with expectations. And that is this longstanding value that's been put on objectivity. Mm. I understand why people began pursuing objectivity, but it is, it's a racist value. (laughs) Can you say more about that? Can you say more about what you, how you, how are you defining objectivity and why you believe it's racist? So objectivity, the way I define it, I mean, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me just say that right now. The way I define it is it's a it's a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just me saying that. That's science. There is mm-hmm. no such thing as a non-biased human. Mm-hmm. Every human is biased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And most of that bias is unconscious and implicit. We're not even aware of it. Mm-hmm. So people will honestly say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And they mean it and they believe it. But that's because they're not aware of the biases they have that live simmering in their subconscious. Mm -hmm. So there's that. There's no such thing as objectivity. But there's this pursuit of objectivity that has brought us to things like both sidesing things. Mm. Well, let's bring in another voice. There's this pursuit of objectivity that has led people to say, well, we can't have this uh, Black person report on uh, a a racist, uh, a racist, an anti-racist march because they're biased. Mm. We can't have an LGBTQ person report on the gay rights movement because they're biased. And yet somehow a a white dude is not biased. They're the normal, right? Mm -hmm. So our idea of objectivity has always been influenced by this idea that the standard, the normal is white and male and everybody else is, can be suspected of bias. So I want to finish off this thought about objectivity because it is still present. And I say that because our group um, Headway, which is focused on bringing um, anti-racist initi- uh, reforms and equity into journalism and especially public media. Um, we issued a, a an open letter. Um, mm-hmm. And in that, one of the reforms that we said that needed to happen was to let go of this idea of objectivity in journalism. And that was the, the issue on which we got the most pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, people said, oh, reporters are going to become, we can't have reporters as activists mm-hmm. and advocates. And I'm like, you do have that now. Yes. You have that now. Yes. Um, all of these political reporters who change their, who want to become buddy buddy with politicians because they want to be in the inner circle, they are advocates and activists. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this whole push towards objectivity is yet another thing that influences journalists to make assumptions, to come in with expectations because they have this idea that such a thing as objectivity is possible. And it's not. The only thing that we can strive for is fairness and transparency. Mm. I can say, look, I am, you know, when I was covering the debate over whether to remove the Confederate flag from some of the Southern states, state house property, and we had a whole series of interviews on that subject, I would start every day by saying, look, My family, I come from a family that was born on a slave plantation just outside of Atlanta. I obviously have strong feelings on the Confederate flag, but I'm going to be fair. And if Mm -hmm. I'm not, reach out and let me know. Mm -hmm. And that's the best that you can do. So, yeah. I wonder if when people hear the word objectivity, they're hearing truth. And so when someone says we're no longer going to pursue objectivity, they're hearing, we're no longer going to pursue the truth. I, I wonder if that has shown up in your experience and how you navigate that. I'm not entirely sure what they're hearing. I mean, it's not, they're, those aren't equal. That's not a synonym. One is not a synonym for the other. Objectivity means a lack of favoritism towards any side, a freedom from mm. bias. And so that's not the same as truth at all. Mm-hmm. I am I can absolutely be biased and yet tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I come in and and make you aware of what my positions are, Mm. I think it makes me even more capable of telling you the truth Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. than otherwise. So yeah, I'm not sure why people, entirely why people object, except that it's a much beloved value that people have held and tried to strive for for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and they have punished others for not, living up to that standard. And maybe when we say no more objectivity, it makes people feel bad. Mm. Yeah, I will say in my experience in academia and in, I guess, interfacing with people on this issue, particularly on social media, when they push back, my sense is that they hear, when they hear objectivity, they hear quote unquote truth. And I come to this from a 
um, you've mentioned science. I think I come at this trying to attempting to come at it from a more scientific perspective. I've recently developed an interest in quantum physics, which I'm not going to try to uh, fully explain. But um, one of the things that I've learned from studying quantum physics is that like precisely what you said, what you're saying, like on a scientific level, we tend to think of things as sort of like pure objects things as things. But if you were to break them down through the lens of quantum physics, we would see that like things are actually just energy condensed into substance. In constant motion. And constant motion and constant motion. And so I think that what you're describing is actually quite profound. And I wonder if we have been, when we push back against it and you know, I have an anti-racism organization, and so I, I deal with these things as well. I wonder if people would be more convinced or persuaded by what we're saying if we would bring in that scientific lens. But I could be naive. That could be like me just projecting. Because I remember, for example, in 2020, the Smithsonian African American Museum produced a list of things that they were speaking out against. And one of, and they claimed that those things were associated with whiteness. And one of the things that they mentioned, if I'm recalling correctly, was objectivity. And the response from many in conservative circles was, are you saying that we shouldn't pursue things like math and science? I mean, there's an irony, obviously, in there, right? Um, but I, fe- I, I feel that because they didn't actually flesh out what they meant by objectivity. It was just a simple pamphlet with like simple punchy words. This is bad. We're dispensing with it. I think that that sort of inevitably produce produces the kind of backlash or pushback. And so that scientific piece is actually very interesting to me. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that or have thought about like fleshing that out in your organization when you sort of push back on this notion of objectivity? So our organization is number one. Hello, sister. We're both in this work together. (laughs) Um, Thank you for your efforts. Um, Our organization is 100% evidence-based only. Okay. Um, And so actually let me pull up for you. Um, I will send you a link to the the open letter, which actually lays out what we mean by objectivity. Mm. And also the, the book that I pu- just published last year called Speaking of Race mm. is entirely about what can science tell us about how to talk, get through the conversation mm. of racism. Like what is our best scientific knowledge? Because you know, as well as I do, that the DEI training that we've been doing for the past 20 or 30 years, it not only doesn't work, but it tends to make things worse. There's sure. pretty good research showing that it backfires. Yeah. And so um, that's sort of where all of this began was me asking this question of, okay, so why do we keep doing this? What does work? And so that's what that entire book is called. Mm. Race. I just linked to the, the anti the open letter as well. Um, and, you know, people actually aren't convinced by data and statistics. Okay. Um, we haven't found a single piece of evidence because when we're talking about racism, we're talking about confirmation bias in the end. Mm-hmm. And human beings are the only species that suffer from confirmation bias. Mm. It doesn't make evolutionary sense, right? Like if you tell a gazelle, there's if a gazelle believes there's no crocodiles in the river, sure. <laughs> and you show the gazelle definitive evidence that there are crocodiles. In fact, there's many, and the gazelle makes the gazelle believe harder that there are no crocodiles gazelles will be wiped out. Yes. <laughs> so, and confirmation bias has shown itself to be perniciously stubborn. It is very difficult to break through and data and statistics doesn't do it. Mm. The only thing that we have found that actually breaks through that is storytelling, mm. which can create an empathic bond and forcing someone else to be self-motivated to question themselves. Mm. How do you do that? So I had ended up, it's all laid out in the book Okay. <laughs> to get through how you actually do that. Sure. Um, but it's really in the end, kind of about Socratic questioning that comes from a real genuine place of curiosity rather than you trying to prove them wrong. Okay. You know, you have to let go of this goal of changing their mind because it won't mm. And so you have to come from this place of real curiosity of, let me ask you questions that are going to make you actually walk through and explain your position 
step by step by step by step by step. Mm. Um, and that ends up actually making that, that can create cracks and confirmation bias. I'll give you a really easy example. In one study, a pair of sociologists asked people, do you know how a toilet works? And of course, everyone's like, yes, I know how a toilet works. And how sure are you, right? Very sure. I know how a toilet works. Okay. Then let's, ex- you explain to me what, as soon as you flush that toilet, you explain to me the entire process. And of course they don't because it yeah. involves reverse osmosis and all those other things. And then at the end, they, when you ask them again, how sure are you know how the toilet works, it breaks. But that's not because they said you're wrong. Look at right. the evidence. They forced them to explain it all the way through. And it's not just toilets. That, that was the same when they asked them if they were sure how health insurance works and mm-hmm. merit pay for teachers and all kinds of other issues. So that's an example. But I'll tell you how this works like in journalism. So for example, I was working with a large newsroom and they had had complaints about bias and racial favoritism and those kind of things in the newsroom. And the managers were quite honestly confused by this. They Mm -hmm. felt they had been working toward racial justice. Mm -hmm. And I did a survey and found that their news pitching process was a huge source of complaint. And I, so I started asking the questions. I said, okay, let's talk through how does a, a pitch get accepted? Who's doing the accepting? Turns out it was two people. Both of those people were older white dudes. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, so what happens if you disagree with the decision they've made? They have no process <laughs> for doing that. Yeah. I said, okay, well, um, how many of the stories that were rejected came from people who were not white? We don't know. We don't keep track. Mm. I said, okay. How many times, how good are these two men who are making these decisions? Like what percentage of the stories that they give the green light to are successful? Mm-hmm. They said, we don't have a definition even for a successful story. Mm. I'm like, so you have no metrics, yeah. <laughs> right? And they could see that. They could see. I said, you are, you are this whole pitching process is entirely gut instinct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course it's based on bias. Of course mm. it is. And they could see that just by walking them through and making them be very specific. Mm. Yeah, I love that. One of the questions that arises for me in hearing you lay out this process is what if the person or the people we want to encourage to go through this process, to do that sort of Socratic or dialectic questioning or encourage someone else to do it, is themselves beset by things like trauma and you know, pain and suffering that actually hinders them or stops them for, from engaging with someone else in that process? Um, so I am not a licensed psychologist. If someone has real trauma that is impacting um, their ability to function or making them dysfunctional in any way, um, that's an entirely separate issue. Mm-hmm. But experiencing trauma does not prevent one from um, going through this process of specificity. In other words, in fact, this process is way more gentle to the psyche Mm. than our normal process of argument and debate. Mm -hmm. Um, This process is collaborative Mm -hmm. um, rather than confrontational. Mm -hmm. And human beings love nothing more than collaborative problem solving. Like we will set aside a lot of differences in order to solve a puzzle with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the end, trauma can be triggered by lots of different things. Sure. But this process is going to be less uh, damaging to, to anybody at all mm-hmm. than the other processes we've tried. And in fact, you know, one of the most common paradigms or solutions when there's any issue with uh, prejudice or bias of any kind in a, in a workplace, one of the most common ways we, re- we resolve that is by bringing in some consultant who mm-hmm. has everyone sit down in a group together and has this emotional pouring out of feelings and all the LGBTQ people and, and Black women usually pour out their hearts and say, this is what happened to me and this is how it hurt me. And all of the evidence we have shows that that is not only re-traumatizing to those people, but it does absolutely nothing to impact the thinking and behavior mm-hmm. of the other people that are listening. Mm-hmm. It does nothing. So that's Mm -hmm, mm re-traumatizing, that standard way of approaching these things. Um, So what you're saying certainly resonates with me. So this next question is, I should say, also impacted by social media. (laughs) Social media, I guess, introduces a different factor or an added complexity 
Um, but it is the case that I have seen in my own work when I try to encourage people to do precisely what you're doing, what you're saying we should do. I've gotten pushback, which is which which often sounds like, you know, it is not my job to do this, quote unquote, emotional labor. So the framing of it is often as emotional labor. And also, you know, it's not my job to be curious or invoke curiosity <laughs> within the other, et cetera. How would you respond to that? Um, that's fair. And if you are in a place, you know, people of color and frankly, especially black women, um, when it comes to these issues are the most overworked, overstressed, traumatized, most disempowered, most disadvantaged. But anybody in that field, in those areas who says, I absolutely cannot do this work or have this conversation. Okay. That's understandable. Yeah. But generally these are people who are, are trying to make changes. And so my question for them is what is your goal here? I mean, if what you need is to retreat entirely and disengage yourself from the effort to improve, things, mm -hmm. that's understandable. But if you're actually actively wanting and trying to bring about change, then you have to ask yourself whether what you have been doing has worked. Mm. Are you interested in doing something that actually has been proven and shown to move the needle or not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Because some of the tactics that we have used in the past make us feel good and do absolutely nothing in terms of changing things or moving the needle at all. Mm -hmm. So what is your goal here? Yeah, this is sort of circuitous, but I feel like this demonstrates the sort of dilemma with our understanding around the word objectivity, <laughs> not to bring it back around, but like this is sort of like the or a kernel that is powerful in the sense that some, when some people specifically in DEI work hear that objectivity is bad or problematic, what they actually hear is I can do whatever I want to do. That makes me feel good regardless of the outcome or regardless of what the data shows. And that's why I think it's really important. And I'm happy that we did it here to tease out what we mean when we say that objectivity is problematic. Because, you know, sometimes people will hear what they want to hear. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I just finished a five installment series. I write a newsletter um, called Here's a Thought. And I just finished a five installment series on dog whistles, mm. um, mainly because, and this relates to objectivity, um, mainly because, you know, we have our monthly meetings for our anti-racist organization. And I wanted to give some people training in how mm -hmm. to report on the upcoming midterms without repeating. Mm dog whistles. And so I went looking for that guide. I'm like, okay, some smart person has told journalists and writers how to do this. Let me go find it so I can pass this on. Nobody had written that. Zero people. <laughs> yeah. Um, linguists had, talk about, had, had talked about it and studied it. Psychologists had studied the effect of dog whistles. Some political scientists had studied it, but zero people had connected this to journalism or writing in general, mm. which explains why we keep doing it mm. <laughs> over and over and over. Um, and we become a megaphone for racist, genderist, sexist, all the dog whistles. Mm -hmm. um, and so I spent a couple months, I mean, I was deep into the research on this, trying to connect dots and create that guideline. And in my newsletter, I created that. But one of the things that comes up is the fact that our idea that we have to both sides things, our, I, our pursuit of objectivity and our fear of being called not objective is mm. what leads us to, led us to stop saying on our own behalf, this is racist, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And instead you bring in some race scholar to say this is racist, mm. right? You, you're trying to you know, keep yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what has created this ridiculous both sides thing in which you have a climate scientist saying climate science is real. And then you bring on a climate denier who's, you know, some, I don't, I don't know, random retail worker saying, I don't believe in this and pretending like these are somehow equal voices. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the ways in which objectivity has just deformed our, our journalism and made it so that we are not doing what we need to do. Um, we are not doing our jobs. So, you know, if Donald Trump says something like, you know, Mexican people are, are racists and criminals and some of them are good people, 
we don't need to bring on a race scholar to say that's racist. Yeah. It's just racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I suspect that one of the reasons why we struggle with objectivity is because we wrongfully perceive it as scientifically accurate and we haven't, we haven't separated the two, but I'm curious. And but we, we never I, talked to a scientist about it. Yes. We but think it's scientifically accurate, but we never spoke to an actual scientist who will tell you it's not biologically, neurologically, cognitively possible. I just put a link to the newsletter, by the way. We will link to that in the, in the, um, in our links, but I will also add that like, yes, what you're saying is accurate. And historically speaking, there is a longstanding, just to go back to Newtonian physics, right? There is a longstanding, and now we realize that it's false belief that objectivity was a part of science and it was accepted in the scientific community, historically speaking, as accurate. And so, of course, there are and have been new research and all of these different avenues that demonstrate that that's not the case. But I feel like we're still catching up as a society to even realizing that and reshaping our culture to reflect that. I agree, except that in science's defense, not that yeah. to defend it, um, one of the ways that they have responded that to that is by making sure that there are peer reviews and there mm. are all kinds of other fail safes so that other credible scientists can in a formal way on record say, mm-hmm. here's where the blind spots are. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have that in journalism. Mm. And we so we just have gone with this myth that we're objective and we don't have any fail safes or accountability when we're not. Mm, that's fair. I'm curious, switching gears for a bit here. You spoke, spoke a lot in 2016 about some of the things we needed to do in order to have greater empathy for each other as a country, do the necessary work of having conversations with each other. What is your assessment of where we are now, given that talk that you gave? Have we gotten closer to your achieving your vision? Have we gotten further away? Too, too yeah, soon to tell? Further. We're further. Okay. Yeah, we're further. Um, we're definitely further. Wow. I can't back that up with data. We don't have the data for that. Um, so, you know, just anecdotally, Mm -hmm. um, people are ready to write people out of their lives. Mm. Um, and I remember this was just really recently, then there was an, an article about a young woman in Texas who had been raised very, very conservative. She was anti-abortion her whole life. And one of a member of her family had a troubled pregnancy where, and she herself had a troubled pregnancy actually. And in where she needed those services. She had to cross state lines to get them. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I was really wrong. You know, I don't want this happening, not just to me, but to my nieces and my loved ones. And the immediate response on social media and elsewhere, even on like podcasts and and talk shows was what a, what a bitch, right? Like she has oppressed other people her whole life. Oh, wow. Just suddenly because it affects her, you know, she's changed her mind. And I was like, how do you think minds change? Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's literally yeah. how our minds change, right? Like, why would you hate on this woman who has changed her mind because she's had a profound experience in her life that has opened her eyes? That's mm. literally how it happens. Yeah. Maybe some people it happens because they read some transformative book. I suppose that's possible. But most of us meet a new person, have a new perspective, have a new experience that makes us see things in a different way. That's literally how these happen. And we respond to it by saying, what a bitch. Wow. You know, so do I think it's gotten worse? I say that because we are so much more likely to judge people based on who they voted for. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about some of my family members and my friends who they, you know, we don't agree politically, but they are crying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They think, you know, they feel they're doing their best. They can be incredibly generous and be the first person to help you out on one hand. And then the next day they do something cruel and rude to a stranger, right? right? People are complicated. Yeah. They are kind and wonderful one day and I don't want to be around them the next day. And to think that somebody would categorize one of my loved ones that way as just Mm. worthless based on who they voted for is breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. 
But that's where we are. And frankly, this isn't just conservatives. This is liberals, too. We are ready to have these purity tests Mm -hmm. of are you a good person or are a bad person based on what you believed 14 years ago? Mm. Like we have to allow for change and evolution and redemption. Mm-hmm. And I get that sometimes that's, that is cynical, especially on the part of politicians who mm. you have some person who's running as a Republican and is anti-abortion one day, and then they decide they have more chance to win as a Democrat and suddenly they're pro-abortion right. rights, right? I get that. But in our everyday lives, do we really want to create a barrier to changing your mind? We want to disincentivize changing your mind. That's think that through. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Think that through. And how in your estimation, does social media exacerbate this? I mean, you've talked a little bit about screens and how we are distracted by screens, incapable of having, I guess, deep conversations, present conversations, or at least it's harder with screens. But how does social media with its, you know, dopamine effects and its sort of capacity to encourage us to be outraged? How does that lead to caricaturizing people and putting people in boxes and seeing people in these rigid constructs and rigid frameworks, which is related to objectivity, I'm realizing as I ask that question. Social media is not a valid means of um, communicating any kind of complicated ideas or conversations. It's not valid. Wow. Shots fired. We have the research. Yeah. Um, We even have even more research on email, which is not exceptionally different from other social media platforms. And Mm. so we know email has been around for decades. We know that email increases significantly the likelihood for miscommunication. It escalates conflict. It makes us less compassionate, less willing to compromise. Um, And the same is true of social media. Social Mm. media has a great deal of promise and use. And it's at this point, a failed experiment. It Mm. is not a valid platform for any kind of substantive conversation between human beings. It is simply useful right now as information exchange. Mm. So are there any rules that you would, if you can wave a magic wand, are there any rules you would tell journalists to abide by when operating on social media? Or would you tell them to just get off social media entirely? I don't think you have to get off social media entirely. Just don't, don't have a conversation there. Don't Mm -hmm. argue with someone on social media. I have a a rule of three responses and I'm done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right. You know, I I will post something. Someone will say, Hey, that's not true. I will respond three times in Mm -hmm. as calm a way as possible, just with information exchange. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to have a nuanced conversation um, or or anything (laughs) like that. Just, you know, yeah. And then that's it. I'm out. And uh, the same is true. I I quit Facebook. There's really only one social media platform I engage in that much, and that's Twitter. I have an Instagram account and I post pictures of like trees. My God. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do not mistake social media. I don't mistake social media for conversation. I don't mistake email for conversation. I don't ex- mistake texting for so, so for conversation. Mm-hmm. None of those are conversations. Um, that's not my gut feeling again. That's <laughs> science. <laughs> and so I don't think I'm having a conversation if I'm texting someone or using any kind of digitally mediated uh, communication. That's that's very interesting. I'm curious about the science behind texting and and what you've seen in in that particular realm. Why is texting not qualify as a conversation? Because we know, you know, since the the fMRI, the functional magnetic resonance imaging machine has been more universally available, we know what it looks like in a human brain when you're having uh, an engaged conversation, when you know which parts of the brain are activated. Mm. Um, uh, for example, your right temple parietal junction away over here, just beneath the skull here, mm. um, is the, it, to, be, to be simplistic, is the part of your brain where you're, it's, if you take your finger, put it on top of your ear, move it up an inch and back an inch, it's right mm-hmm. about there. Okay. Um, that's essentially where your empathy lives. Mm. Also your self-control. Mm-hmm. Um, and an email doesn't activate that part of your brain. Mm. Um, we know what it looks like in your, in your entire body. We mm. know how your parasympathetic nervous system responds. Like that's trackable. <laughs> yeah. That's not intangible. Yeah. And so, and we also know 
They have tested, for example, our accuracy in relaying in a message effectively in text versus mm. your voice. We know that most people think they can very effectively relay a message through email or text. We know that most people believe their best friends and closest family members can detect sarcasm when they send a text or email. We also know that's not true. <laughs> your best friend is no better at uh, detecting sarcasm in your email than a complete stranger off the street. Mm. This feeling that you get that you have communicated clearly is only produced because you are c- communicating entirely within a bubble. Mm. The other person is not there saying what, or you don't see the confusion in their face or right. pushing back. And you say, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. Right? right. That's what happens in a real conversation, but it doesn't happen in an email. So you're like, send, I'm awesome. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you don't realize that you haven't actually communicated what it was you thought you were communicating. We have tested this. We've tested mm. it again and again and again. And so we know that texting is not the same. We know it's not the same emotionally. We know what hormones get activated when you text dopamine, as mm. opposed to those that you that get activated when you have a conversation, oxytocin and serotonin. Mm. We know what parts of the brain are activated. We know what happens throughout your entire body. They mm. are not the same. Beautiful. Yeah. I will definitely think more about this because I send a lot of texts. Um. Let me give you one more. Let me give you one more. If that doesn't convince you to stop texting anything emotional, like texting, texting is great for like, how are you doing? Yeah. What do you want for dinner? What time do you want to meet? Information exchange. Great. Yeah. But let me give you another example. They had, they got a group of young women and they had them do something very stressful. In this case, they were solving math problems in front of an audience Mm -hmm. and they had them hooked up the entire time. They were able to keep track of their metrics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, they were testing their stress markers. So not surprisingly, when, as soon as these young girls came off the stage, their stress was at extremely high level. Now they divided them into four groups. One group, their mom was waiting for them backstage. One group, they got a phone call from their mother. Mm. One group got got a text from their mother. All of these are supportive, right? And one, there was no contact with their mother whatsoever. Mm. So as you can possibly, as you can probably expect, those who had their mother waiting backstage going, you're fine, you're great, I love you. Their cortisol dropped, plummeted. Yeah, Their stress was relieved immediately. And not surprisingly, also those who had no contact from their parent, their stress levels remained high. Yeah. Here's the surprising thing. Those who got a text from their mother saying, I love you, sweetie. You did great. I hope everything's okay. Their stress levels also moved almost not at all. And the, mm. those who got a phone call from their mother, their stress levels dropped almost the same amount as the person whose mother was waiting backstage. Mm. We okay. don't respond the same way to a written message that we do to a vocal message. And if you think about it in terms of evolution, yeah. that we have spent 300,000 years perfecting conversation that involves your voice in your ears. And we have only had written language for a tiny sliver of that time. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. understand it. Yes. I'm having so many aha moments right now as you're describing this scientifically, because what I am realizing is that, again, to bring it to the anti-racism uh, conversation, which, you know, is very near and dear to my heart for obvious reasons. When th- there has been within, let's say, more liberal left-wing circles, a conversation about the limitations of the written word. And I would be very curious how journalists would navigate this even outside of the realm of social media, but going into, you know, article writing and things of this nature. There have been conversations about the limitation of the written word and conversations that are all about the need to have a more call and response oriented culture which of course has been pervasive in certainly different aspects of the African-American community, right? Whether you're talking about faith-based traditions, whether you're talking about the musicality of the culture, et cetera. So there is a synergy that I'm seeing playing out between science and what we're finding scientifically and what many of these cultures and many people who are complaining about racism within these cultures are actually saying. And I don't know, I don't really have a question, but I guess like, how does that land for you? Because that makes me, that lights me up to to see this synergy happening. And I just wish, like for me, my gut level 
non-proven feeling is that there could actually be overlap between, let's say, conservatives and liberals on this issue if we were to demonstrate how there is a synergy and confluence between science, between a lot of what these traditions and cultures are saying. So I'm curious, like what that observation does for you, if anything, any thoughts you might have. Um, So let me start out by giving you just one more data point coming from a research study. Um, And this is from the extremely fantastic uh, academic and scientist, Nicholas Epley, um, Mm. who wrote a book called MindWise, which is all about how all the things we think we know and can intuit and mm. are <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So he did a study in which he would present people with dissenting opinions, opinions with which they disagreed. Okay. And they would either get this opinion by reading it in any form, newspaper, book, online, wherever. And then the other ones would hear the person saying that opinion in their own voice. The ones who oh, read wow. that opinion, <laughs> the ones who read that opinion, yeah. Any form, we're 60 to 70% more likely to say that person disagreed because they were stupid and they don't understand the core concepts. Mm. Those who heard that person saying their opinion in their own voice said they disagreed because they had different perspectives and experiences. Mm. It is the human voice. And again, I'm, I'm leaving out ALS, but there's really diff- a, a very comparable research that's not nearly as much research, but there's comparable research that about sign language because mm-hmm. sign language involves so much emoting and uh, emotional information. But it is our voice that humanizes us. Yes. It's the sound of your voice that allows me to recognize you as a human being. Yes. And so when we talk about call and response and storytelling, which is not just incredibly important to the African-American community, especially because we were prevented from writing Mm. and prevented from having literacy for so long that we had a very oral tradition. But it's it's absolutely uh, crucial to many traditions, Mm -hmm. the Jewish tradition, native traditions as well. And it has a unique power to create empathic bonds. And it is only empathic bonds between people that can actually change minds. That doesn't mean that, obviously, I write books. I do journalism. That doesn't mean that the written word is not valuable. What you want is for that empathic bond to make someone question their own assumptions, and then they go and and consult those books and that writing to do their research. Right. That's what you want. Mm. This is beautiful. And I think this is the kind of conversation that can actually bridge the gap between seeing something like, you know, quote unquote, whiteness is all of these things. And let's say the conservative who sees that and is sort of taken aback or frozen or not convinced or in worst case scenarios, driven even more into their silos, into their circles, because they're assuming that pamphlet means something other than what we are saying. Yeah, I've been trying to sort of, and perhaps this is folly uh, based upon what you're saying. I've been trying to encourage people to have this conversation on social media where I will see, you know, someone who is in an anti-racist circle saying or having these critiques about the limitations of the written word and someone in a more conservative circle saying, oh, you don't like reading, you don't value reading. When in fact, you know, Socrates himself actually talked about the limitations of the written word. I have been trying to like get people to see how, you know, Jay-Z says that oftentimes where you can have two people who come from opposite sides and they're living the same reality, but through two different dimensions and they don't realize that. And so I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation. And especially it is incredible that you're coming into this work from the perspective of a classically trained singer. And I, I love that. I think that's so important. I'm sure you can, I don't know if you can see the, you probably can't see it, but I don't know if you can see the ma- massive poster of Aretha Franklin I have um, <laughs> behind me. But like the arts is something that I try to use in my anti-racism practice specifically for this reason and specifically to try to bridge the gap. So I just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. And I want to encourage you uh, to continue because I do believe that you can have a profound impact in journalism. You're already having a profound impact in the journalistic space. And I, I'm happy to help and, and do all I can to give you a voice in the circles that I run in who may not be familiar with you. So I just want to say thank you. 
Thanks. I really appreciate that. I mean, if it helps, I, I totally, as you move forward in this, especially the science-based stuff, yeah. um, uh, the, my book has all the footnotes. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> so you'll be able to, if you go to speaking of race, you can walk through and follow the track that I mm. followed. And then hopefully you're going to take it even steps further and come back yeah. to me and say, Hey, look at how I built on this. Look at what I learned, uh, which is what I'm hoping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like to find stuff that works. Absolutely. So for the audience, tell us everything that you would like to promote. What books would you like us to read? I know you have several books out and also I have to do it. What platforms would you like us to, to subscribe to you on? Um, Twitter's probably the only one. I mean, if you enjoy photos of nature <laughs> walks and dogs, that's my Instagram. Yeah. Um, but Twitter's the one that I'm actually really active on. And then my latest book is the one speaking of race. I wrote a book companion book mm. it's for script though it's called um you're cute when you're mad how to you know have conversations about sexism okay um, <laughs> but again that's on script mm-hmm. um and then you know the newsletter is is basically here's something really cool i read this week and let's dig into it mm. um, so that's where it's sort of like here's what i'm thinking about this week comes up um, beautiful yeah if you could send some of those links, specifically the newsletter ones to my producer, and then we'll link to them in the show notes. That would be great. I don't know. I, don't know you, I, I wasn't, I think those, the producer was con- conversing with Ashley. I put, oh, them in the chat. Okay. I put them in the chat here. Okay. So the, I will, let me just. One's the newsletter. The first yeah. one is that an open letter that came from our organization. Okay. Public media journalists. Let me just quickly copy and paste these so I don't lose them. And, um. Yeah, I will. I will do that in, in a few seconds. Other than that, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. This will probably be out in a few weeks, and it will also probably be out with a Substack piece where I'm speaking about this issue with with the written word and the oral tradition and the call and response and how that is necessary. Um, I think for us to get back to, if we want to rehumanize ourselves and each other. And so. I love the work that you're doing. I mean, it's so you have Thank so you. Much more compassionate, your theory of enchantment is so much more compassionate and human than many other anti-racist programs that I just wanted to say, I really, really appreciate the work that you do. So. Thank you, Celeste. Thank you so much. Other than that, I will let you go, give you back the rest of your day. Thank you so much for sharing with us all of the tips and things that we can work on. I will certainly be more mindful of like texting versus calling (laughs) in the future. So thank you. Have a great day and the rest of the week. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.